these are extremely basic things that are commonly uh, misunderstood inside the media, which which is a huge problem, I think, is because it often leads to misinforming your audience about the issue when you're reporting on it, which is the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be doing as reporters. Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Stephen Gutowski, a firearms expert and reporter, as well as the founder of The Reload. CNN just announced that Stephen is joining the network as a contributor on its Guns in America team, a new beat dedicated to covering guns and gun violence across the United States. Stephen's one of the best reporters covering firearms in America, and I've long wanted to chat with him on this show about the state of gun violence and gun control in the country. We also discuss his new gig at CNN, what's going on at the NRA, and what the media gets wrong when it covers firearms. Stephen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I've been wanting to speak with you for a while. I finally got the opportunity now that you are joining CNN, which is launching a new beat called Guns in America. Congrats on the gig. Tell us about that new beat and what you want to do with it. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think <clears throat> to me, the beat is CNN's commitment to trying to cover this issue from a, a more a, a nuanced point of view that incorporates a lot of different worldviews into it. You know, they've hired not just me, but reporter from The Trace, a reporter from The Guardian, and obviously a, an in-house correspondent as well to to put this uh, operation together. And I think they're looking for uh, an approach that informs rather than inflames, right? It's, I know that's something of a cliche, but I think that's what they're really looking for. And that's how it's been explained to me. You know, they're looking for me to come in as a subject matter expert, as somebody to give analysis and do reporting on occasion as well, um, not somebody to come in and and be it the the commentator or the opinion person. They have people like that who who will fill that role already on staff. Uh, what they're looking for is is more on the journalism side from from me and these other uh, people involved. That's my understanding, and I and that's why I agreed to do it. I think that's that's something that especially on the issue of guns in America, which is such a complex and divisive subject that kind of ambition for how a news network covers the issue is one I think that's sorely lacking right now. So you earned a lot of, I'd say, well-deserved plaudits when CNN announced your hiring. Uh, Maggie Haberman, for example, called it a very smart decision. Despite that praise from journalists, you have long criticized how major media reports on firearms. You wrote recently that a severe lack of knowledge about guns, gun owners, gun laws, and even gun politics is endemic throughout the industry. Explain that for us. What what are your biggest complaints about how the media covers firearms? Yeah, and this is something I've been saying for a long time. Uh, you know, I was on the the cover of Time a few years ago and talking about the same issue, where essentially, I, to me, you know, it's not political bias, although some that does certainly exist uh, on this issue within the media. It's more a lack of knowledge and a lack of concentration, right? You know, that's one of the things I really appreciated about this this opportunity with CNN is that they seem to be putting more of a, a focus on making this a beat inside their newsroom, uh, which is not something that's common at, at major media. You don't see gun beat reporters. Um, you know, Lois Beckett from the guardian was, was one years ago. And while the guardian has a more left-leaning approach editorially, I thought she did a lot of incredible work because of the fact that she was focused on that beat and, and, 
even the trace, you know, which, which, uh, you know, is uh, a nonprofit that receives funding from every town. They have a perspective, obviously, and they're transparent about that. Uh, but at least you know, to me, they're, they're consistently following the story so that their reporters tend to know a lot more about the issue than uh, your average reporter at, at a major media outlet where they really only cover mass shootings, uh, maybe legislation occasionally when it comes up at the federal level. And so they don't know that much and, and they're usually getting general assignment reporters to do these stories. Uh, and so they don't pick up that knowledge as they go through and cover a beat and talk to experts and, and talk to people on either side of the issue. And so you end up with a lot of very base level mistakes happening over and over and over again in media coverage, things like not knowing the difference between semi-automatic and fully automatic, you know, semi-automatic is where you pull the trigger and it fires once. And then uh, you have to pull the trigger again for it to fire uh, another time. Whereas fully automatic is you pull the trigger and if you hold it down, it continues to fire. And these are extremely basic things that are commonly uh, misunderstood inside the media, which which is a huge problem, I think, is because it often leads to misinforming your audience about the issue when you're reporting on it, which is the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be doing as reporters. CNN has gone through some significant turmoil over the last year, and the new regime has been under Chris Licht, the new CEO, uh, has been emphasizing a kind of lower volume, more objective CNN. Do you see CNN as a place and... I suppose the question is, did they convince you that CNN is a place where sort of nuanced debate and reporting that you want to do can now happen? Yeah, I mean, I've obviously seen those developments too, mostly by reading media, to be honest. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie that is, that does encourage me. And it is part of my, my thought process on uh, joining CNN in this role, because uh, I think it would it would be great if that's how the, the, the station ends up moving, you know, in a, in a direction more uh, centered on, on journalism and, and less on, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, opinion takes and stuff, but that, you know, that's my uh, bias as a, as a reporter, right. Is that's what I like to see. So I don't know that that's uh, uh, you know, a terribly great insight, but it's, but it is, is something that helps convince me. And it is something that, um, you know, I, I, that I, I've seen in the process as well, in the way that they've talked to me, the way they've treated me has been great, uh, has been very fair. And they're, they're not looking to try to put words in my mouth or tell me what to think about an issue or, or how to analyze a story. They're doing the exact opposite. They're saying, you know, look, we value your point of view on this, um, just as they value the points of view of the other people involved in the team, which differ from my own, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, they're trying to have me on to share that point of view. They want that expertise that, that I've been able to collect over the years of covering this issue. And, and you know, I think that speaks very well then, personally. Um, but, yeah, it, as far as uh, the direction of the organization, I, you know, I, I, I like what they're doing. I appreciate the effort that they're putting in with this. I, you know, I think there's a lot of great reporters at CNN. Um, and, and, you know, I like the think there's great reporters at all kinds of different outlets. I've always thought that. And I always tried to work with everyone from all different outlets. But to see a major news uh, operation like this uh, intentionally move towards more 
uh, reporting and more nuance and more uh, diversification of, of points of view, I think is fantastic. So I want to talk about gun laws. As I said before, it's a very complicated, divisive issue in America. I think that's why it's so hard for people to understand it. One of those sticking points that we see a lot is the fact that there seem to be certain measures that have an overwhelming amount of support from Americans, like more than you know, 90% of Americans and 90% of gun owners support universal background checks. And getting any sort of gun regulation passed seems almost impossible. I mean, there was some that Joe Biden passed uh, back in June. I do want to talk about them in a bit. But mm-hmm. why do you think now it has become so hard for gun regulations that seem to have the support of most Americans to be passed by the U.S. government? I think it probably goes back, honestly, at the bottom level to that polarization where, you know, the uh, there just isn't a lot of incentive for either party to reach across and come up with a compromise on on the issue that is politically viable for both sides. Um, if, if you're just looking at it from a purely, you know, political calculation side of things. I do think that uh, as well, the polling uh, for some of those initiatives does tend to overplay practical support for them, uh, you know, in terms of driving voters uh, at, at the polls. Uh, for instance, if you look at the ballot initiatives that have coalesced on some of these issues, uh, especially universal background checks, right? Um, you know, there was a ballot initiative in Maine in 2016 and in Nevada as well. And even though the polling was, uh, as you indicated, the was in the high 80%, low 90% uh, for support for these issues, even within the states themselves. Uh, and uh, for instance, in Maine, the uh, the side that was supporting the universal background check initiative outspent the opposition there. It still lost. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, it came in, at, it was a close, but it, it came in less than 50%. And in Nevada, it did pass, but it passed just at the slight margin uh, of just above 50%. And then it got into, there were a lot of uh, uh, legal fights after the initiative passed. But the point is like, actual voting on the issues of people turning out to vote one way or the other. And this is not on a candidate. This is on the direct question. Right. Um, referendums. Obviously, yeah, referendums where, uh, you know, people have to weigh the specific details of a proposal like this um, instead of just the general thought that they like. People like background checks, right, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to gun purchases. But they might not like, for instance, uh, some of these laws require background checks on transfers, not just sales. So if you ever want to lend a gun to a friend, you'd have to go to a gun dealer first and transfer the through them, have a background check done. And so there can be uh, details that complicate this, that, that level of support to the point where it actually becomes um, less than 50% in, you know, in a referendum. Right. And so, you know, there, there's, that's part of the reason I think, you know, polarization of just like not, a lot of politicians now are just not super willing to take risks. That's why the the gun bill this summer was was uh, pretty interesting to see actually get through. It's not a it's certainly not something that I think either side of the gun debate was uh, especially happy with in terms of the policies that came out of it. But it, they did include the first federal gun restrictions in uh, since the assault weapons ban in the nineties. So right. Uh, it wasn't 
it was something, you know, you often hear the refrain of do something and they did something. And, and uh, I think it had the desired political effect for Republicans at the very least, which was the gun issue is not as prevalent now as we go into these elections. Right. Uh, even though we had, you know, Uvalde happened in May, which was one of the worst shootings in American history. And so part of that is you know, they did something, whether it's, whether it's, it's good policy or it's going to prevent future uh, shootings like that is obviously an open question, but uh, that people are going to continue to debate for a long time. But it was something and it seems to have had the effect of speeding up this um, cycle we see after major shootings where people become more interested in gun control policy and more supportive of different measures. And then it wanes over time while they pass this law. And now it's waned back down right. uh, perhaps maybe faster than it otherwise would have. So you mentioned this cycle that we go through every time that there's a, um, a mass shooting. And I think an argument that gets made pretty frequently amid these sort of unimaginable tragedies is that when you look at specific cases of mass shootings, proposed regulations, whatever certain politicians or activists or members of the media are proposing at any given time, would not have stopped the shooter from obtaining a gun. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's not true. But either way, that argument always gets made. Do you think that there are any regulations that make sense, as in that the U.S. does not already have in place and that would have an impact on actually curbing gun violence? And I'm talking more about these mass shootings and less about common gun violence, which is huge in the United States, but that we have a lot of laws that fight against. Yeah, I mean, I'm hesitant to endorse or, or uh, you know, d- go against specific policy proposals. I, you know, prefer to mainly stick to describing them for people and then they can make their own minds. I do think when it comes to mass shootings though, that oftentimes those events, uh, there are a lot of preceding red flags, right? And this is sort of where the red flag legislation gets its name from, um, where the person at the very least, if something had been done about it, uh, if the current law that was in place at the time had been followed or taken advantage of, you know, by law enforcement or or uh, family members or friends who had witnessed these uh, these red flag events, um, oftentimes crimes, right, uh, that go unprosecuted, that then at the very least you would have been able to prevent that that specific person in that specific situation from obtaining guns legally. Uh, you know, there's whether they would have been able to get a gun a different way is obviously an open question. And, and um, there's plenty to debate on that front, but uh, for instance, um, the Buffalo shooter was, uh, had made, had, had drawn concerning images of, uh, you know, him killing people and was actually reported to uh, school and then to the police and was taken for a psychiatric evaluation. Uh, Now, New York, where this happened, was is a state that has, of course, a red flag law already, but wasn't used in this in that situation. So he was able to to legally buy guns after that point, and and then modify them illegally. Uh, but additionally, he was if you're involuntarily committed, uh, which perhaps he should have been in that situation, um, you also can't legally buy guns for, under federal law. Right. Uh, 
you know, depending on the circumstances. But uh, that uh, apparently him being committed for the taking a mental facility for this period of time by the police somehow did not qualify uh, for for that prohibition. Same thing in in Florida with the Parkland shooter who would. Uh, was involved in domestic violence incidents. Uh, if you're convicted of a domestic violence misdemeanor, you can't own firearms. You can't buy. That's uh, one of the federal prohibitions. Uh, he also uh, had expressed suicidal ideation, which is another thing he could have been uh, committed for alongside some of the other uh, signs that he showed. Uh, the Sutherland Springs shooter had actually uh, committed crimes in the military that disqualified him from owning guns. However, he was able to, to buy guns. It was illegal for him, but not the store that sold to him because his records never got sent to the FBI's background check system. So when he went to buy guns, his records didn't come up in that background check. So there's a lot of, and this, you see this all the time when you look closely at these shootings. Now it's easier to notice these things in hindsight, of course, uh, than it is perhaps to try and say anyone that does that has suicidal ideation should be involuntarily committed. Obviously, that's not uh, a reasonable position. But I do think that oftentimes there are a series of red flags in these cases where if somebody had taken advantage of the things that were already in place, um, the the crisis could have been averted or at least made more difficult to carry out. David French, who writes for The Dispatch, and I know is, is a, I believe is a friend of yours. Uh, he's also mm-hmm. a former yep. guest uh, on this podcast. He made an exhausted case for red flag laws to be passed in the aftermath of the, I believe it was the Evalde and the Buffalo shootings. They are in place in, I think it's about 10 states in the U.S., do you think that those red flag laws are going to eventually have success in Republican-controlled states. I'm, I'm pretty sure so far there may be only a place in one state, Florida, that has a Republican yeah. governor. Right. Uh, red flag laws are there's sort of this parallel at state level policy right now between red flag laws and uh, constitutional carry or permitless carry, um, <clears throat> which is that they're passed in uh, only really red or blue states. Mm-hmm. So you get red, red flag laws in in blue states uh, with little exception and you get permitless carry laws in red states with little exception. Uh, you know, you'll have one or two states where that's doesn't hold true, but, uh, you know, so there's, there's very little hope. I think at this point right now that red flag laws will begin to pop up more often in, in red states. Uh, I think there's, there's become a, a significant, um, opposition to these policies among gun rights advocates over their uh, concerns about due process because of effectively the way a red flag law works is that, um, you know, you're accused of exhibiting some sort of issue that makes you perhaps inclined to uh, either hurt yourself or others. Generally, red flag laws are mostly used in cases of uh, suicidal ideation. Uh, so that that's the majority of, the, I mean, that, that which makes sense because that's going to be a more common problem than uh, mass shootings, which are statistically rare. Obviously they happen more, even happening once is more than anyone 
ever wants to see. But statistically, suicides happen far more often, of course. And so uh, that's really in practice where red flag laws get used for the most part. There's some suggestion. They're still really early. You know, they're only a couple of years old, these policies. So we don't have a lot of really strong data on them or studies on them that uh, look at a long period of time. So they're still developing, you know, what, what, how, how do these things actually affect, uh, you know, gun violence or suicide rates in practice rather than in theory? Because uh, the theory, I think, is appealing to a lot of people, um, but it's when you get into the practice and the details that's where that's where people uh, start to question things on the gun rights side. In terms of, uh, you know, you, you can be accused without uh, being notified. You know, th- these are ex parte hearings, oftentimes, so the, the accused isn't present. Um, you know, the, there's a there's a concern that. While these are temporary, they can be extended for, in some places, continually. Uh, if a judge determines that you're still a threat to yourself or others, uh, the standard of evidence can be another issue that people have with those laws. So it's not to say that they're inherently bad policy or whatever, or that there couldn't be uh, a way of drawing up a red flag law that would address all of those issues. Uh, of course, another issue is like, well, if this person is a threat to themselves or others, why is the only thing you're going to do is take away their guns there, you know, obviously that's not the only way to hurt yourself or other people. Um, and so there's sort of an imperfect solution, uh, to the, the overall problem, I, I guess is, is one critique that you'll hear. And, um, but yeah, at this point, politically, I think it's starting to crystallize in the way that most other gun policies have where there really are, uh, two sets of gun policies in the United States when it, when it comes to the state level, there's, there's the democratic policies and the Republican policies. Right. And this is becoming crystallized as a democratic policy in practice, right. uh, just from practical political terms. Um, whether that's the right way to go is obviously David French would say no, of course. Right. <laughs> and I've had him on my podcast as well. And we've talked about this issue at length, but, but yeah, that, I just think from a practical standpoint of what's happening, there isn't a lot of uh, reason to think that red flag laws are going to become popular in red states moving forward right now. Right. And David French's counter argument to the due process argument, which is that possession of a gun is constitutional right. Sometimes emergencies call for certain limits on constitutional rights. And Yeah, David's David's arguments uh, basically that he's comfortable with red flag laws if they're um, in line with, for instance, domestic violence restraining orders where, you know, obviously right. you have a right to see your children. But if you're subject to a domestic violence restraining order, you can't do that. So it's... Uh, if, if we're if we're comfortable with the, that process for that purpose, which is which also in, implicates you know uh, constitutional rights, then if we have the same process for red flag laws, then he's he finds that, although he does say that that's not always the process for red flag laws, and that is a problem uh, depending on the individual policies that each state uh, accepts. But that's that's his basic argument. I think that's uh, uh, you know an argument you'll hear from from people who support. Uh, red flag laws a lot, you know, these aren't, this process, while uh, it does involve, you know, ex parte hearings and things of that nature is not completely unique to Mm. red flag laws. They are used in other circumstances with temporary uh, orders as well. Now, one argument that's made against those who dismiss, you know, say that, well, this certain law, this regulation would not curb mass shootings is, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times before, that the United States is the only place 
in the world where mass shootings happen with such regularity. Or it's the only developed nation in the world. It's, you know, made in different ways. Do you have any idea in your years of reporting why America, compared to other countries, sees so many more mass shootings with such regularity? Right. Well, there there is some dispute over whether that's the case. Uh, John Lott, who's a, pro, a pro-gun researcher, has a study that um, that argues it's not true. Um, you know, obviously, there are mass shootings that happen around the world. We just saw a, a major one in uh, was Sri Lanka, I believe, and, and Russia had a, a major school shooting as well fairly recently. These don't only happen in the United States. They do, uh, you know, what's what's more interesting to me, uh, honestly, uh, rather than debating why why is America different from other countries. I mean, obviously, we have there's a lot of things that are different about America than other countries, especially when people sort of uh, narrow that down to develop what they call developed countries, which cuts out, uh, you know, most of the world and places even like our neighbors in Mexico. But, um, <clears throat> you know, America is just generally more violent, especially in certain areas of the country. Uh, and Amer- that's another thing about America is like, we were talking about violence in America. It's very different depending on where you're looking um, in the country. Like some parts of some cities are extremely violent. Uh, up there with the most violent places in the world. Uh, and then other areas are are uh, among the most nonviolent, they have the lowest crime rates in the world as well. So it's there's, America is a vast country made up of all sorts of different um, uh, uh, situations, really, that, that deserve, uh, you know, good, uh, close study in proper context. But I, what's more interesting to me, though, is why we've seen an increase in these kinds of mass shootings over time in the United States, because they weren't, it's not like we always had uh, mass shootings. And, uh, you know, it's not as though more people own guns now than they used to in the the 30s or 40s, according to polling, at least. Um, And technology of these guns, as much as people might try to focus on that, is really not that different from it, what it was in the thirties and forties and fifties either. I mean, the, the M16, the AR-15, those, that gun is from the 1950s. Like, I know people think of it as a very modern firearm, but it's not as though, and it's, a, you know, the civilian version, the AR-15 is semi-automatic rifle. And those have been around since, uh, you know, the turn of the century of the 20th century. And so why, now are we seeing this and, and, and this specific kind of uh, lashing out in violent ways where it's often like a one person, uh, young, young men usually, uh, and they're just trying to kill as many strangers or, or not always strangers, but oftentimes people in public areas as they possibly can, instead of, you know, specifically targeting one, one person that they viewed them as causing them harm or whatever that that's more interesting to me. And I I don't, I don't have a a great answer for it. Um, You know, I've talked to a couple of uh, people who study this for, for a living, you know, there there's uh, the AP does a uh, keeps a database on these shootings. And I've talked to the professor that runs that and he's, you know, I don't, I don't know that he has a great answer for why this, this is happening in this way or 
or uh, you know, he he argues that it hasn't increased dramatically over time over the last you know several mm-hmm. decades. Um, in terms of uh, the, these instances, there has been a way a significant change in how we talk about it uh, and how we define what a mass shooting is now. There, which uh, previously been, you know, f- uh, four more people killed in a single incident. Now it's four more people shot, which obviously is a extremely different metric, which will give you far more numbers. And frankly, I think is not a good measure because it mixes in a lot of different kinds of shootings. Um, I think the AP and Mother Jones give the best uh, objective standard for how to measure these things to get a feeling of how often they're happening. You know, as far as like Uvalde and Sandy Hook and, and uh, you know, Buffalo style shootings go, you know, those are pretty diff- unique events from, even from the four or more killed standard, because that most people, uh, most of those incidents actually are uh, where someone kills themselves and their entire family, which is a horrific thing, but it's obviously a, a different phenomenon than a gang shooting that ha- leaves four people injured or uh, a robbery where four people are injured or Uvalde or, or Parkland, right? These are, these are all pretty different. They're all horrific. Uh, and we should try to figure out ways to address them and make them less likely to happen. But that means almost certainly you're going to have different approaches for each situation, Mm. right? You're not going to have the same solution for uh, rising gang violence uh, as you are for school shootings in the vast majority of cases, right? I did want to touch on the NRA a little bit. Wayne LaPierre, has gotten some criticism for his leadership of the NRA. And I'm thinking of an example, you know, a week after the Sandy Hook shooting where 20, 20 kids were killed, he got up on a stage and said, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And that prompted outrage and, and even with, within the NRA. What do you think of the NRA? And, and do, you, do you blame them in any part for the political climate that surrounds guns right now? The NRA, in my view is the largest and most influential gun group on either side of the issue uh, in the country. And it remains that even with all of the internal struggles that they've, they've dealt with over the corruption allegations uh, from the last few years. Uh, And even with, there's been a shrinking in revenue and a shrinking in in membership and, and all these uh, significant problems that they're facing. Obviously they're, they're facing a, a corruption suit in New York that's ongoing that could have major implications for uh, the structure of the organization and its leadership. But even with all that happening, I think I think a lot of people have started to sort of write off the NRA as uh, old news or, or whatever. But I mean, you know, uh, even I, what I try to keep in mind is like, yeah, I went to the convention this year, uh, the first one they had since COVID started. And reported on the woes that they've experienced, you know, this downturn in, in attendance. The attendance was as low as it's been since 20, uh, 2006. And, uh, you know, voting in the, the director election was only like 500 people voted for the 76th director. You know, all these negative things that are happening, showing, you know, the, the group is struggling. But at the same time, uh, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that no other gun group could put on a convention like that. Like the, none of them, 
not even close to that. Not, and not, not every town or Giffords or, or Brady either on the other side. And, and none of the program groups could do what the NRA is still able to do. And so I think it's important. And it's same thing with a lot of areas uh, of the gun, uh, of gun world are, are still dominated by the NRA because there just isn't a real alternative, like political spending still dominated by the NRA on the pro-gun side. Uh, the, the gun control groups have caught up with them to a large degree in that area over the last two elections, but nobody on the pro-gun side is coming close to matching them. And they're still, they're still neck and neck with the gun control groups at this point. Mm. Um, uh, so yeah, when it comes to the political atmosphere surrounding guns, the NRA has absolutely has a lot to do with it. And they set the tone in a lot of ways and so their messaging and their uh, dive into political polarization in a lot of ways has certainly had an effect, I think, on, on now, again, going back to earlier, whether that's, whether that's a, an active choice on their part and they could have done things differently to forestall the issue of guns becoming uh, partisan in the way that it has, or whether they're just reacting to how our politics are moving uh, in that direction without, you know, their, their influence is another question. I think it's probably a little bit of both, honestly, mm. like that if they hadn't dove in so uh, aggressively towards uh, for instance, supporting Donald Trump um, becoming, you know, uh, really just an organization that endorses Republicans at this point uh, and, and used rhetoric that is so uh, alienating to people who aren't conservative Republicans, uh, getting involved in issues that aren't gun related, like, you know, immigration and uh, COVID vaccination requirement you know, mandates and, and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe things would have been different, but it's, I don't know that that's really clear, right? Like would, would that have, if they had just focused on gun policy and been more friendly towards Democrats, would that have kept, you know, pro-gun Democrats in Congress? I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, you know. Honestly, I don't know. Uh, probably, maybe, maybe, maybe a few more of them, but, I think but critics, the larger trend is probably. The, the uh, NRA the, critics, and I'm curious for a take on it, would argue that you know, Republicans would be far more amenable to working with Democrats on, you know, common sense gun regulation if the NRA were, were more tolerant of allowing for those sort of regulations to be passed and put less pressure on Republican lawmakers. Right. Well, but that would go directly against the whole point of the NRA, I guess. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, sure. If the NRA was not a gun advocacy, a gun group. advocacy group, yeah, right. then, you know, what I mean, like, yeah, I guess you could criticize them for uh, certainly people do criticize them for being too uh, stringent on uh, absolute opposing. Right. Yeah. Some, although obviously, although I will say that the, the temperature inside of the gun rights movement doesn't lean that way. Most, the most common critique you'll hear of the NRA outside of the corruption uh, issues inside of the gun rights movement is that they're too soft on uh, when it comes to gun control. Like, honestly, that's, and that's what any other group that like, uh, gun owners of America, for instance, their whole, uh, their whole ethos is that they're the no compromise gun rights organization. 
And who do you think they're talking about when, when they're impli- implying that other people are the compromise group? They're Soft talking about the NRA. the NRA. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, as far as the NRA, yeah, I know that that's uh, what you hear a lot in, in media and uh, from gun control advocates, obviously. And that's, that's naturally going to be their position on, on uh, the NRA. But, but I think the reality inside of the gun rights movement uh, among gun rights activists at, at the very least uh, is that the NRA is, if anything, too, too willing to compromise. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it, I understand that that's definitely a, a common critique that you'll hear from, uh, from people in media and from uh, gun control activists, but it's not a common critique that you hear in the gun movement. I think more common critiques of the NRA uh, other than just this idea that they'd compromise too much is uh, that they, you know, are, are too uh, p- focused on the Republican party or, or Donald Trump or that their, their rhetoric alienates um, people who would otherwise be interested in uh, guns, but are not necessarily conservative Republicans uh, so, but, but that's also a political calculation you have to make when you're a group like the NRA, uh, to some degree, like, you know, are they going to be better off by appealing to this core group of supporters that's, uh, giving them a lot of money and maybe they can get some more money from those people by alienating some of the people on the, but they have to alienate some of the people on the fence to do it. Uh, and maybe they, they'll carry more uh, favor with, uh, elected Republicans if they're not as forgiving towards uh their opponents right uh, you know is uh, this comes with how and and to be fair it's not just the nra doing that right you see this with uh the aclu uh you see it with uh, the, uh, the gun control groups right now i mean every town is running ads about abortion and they're putting money into state secretary races that don't have anything to do with gun policy they're so a lot of single issue groups are really turning into sort of partisan identity groups at this point. They're just uh, doing a lot of intersectionality, I guess is what you would call it. Right. Presumably to keep donations coming in when a certain issue is not necessarily at the top of the news. Um, Stephen Gutowski, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Stephen Gutowski on Mediaite.com.